This podcast is for you if you want to learn about the wonderful and wacky world of the English language and the people who speak it. If you want to learn English, speak English, and understand different speakers of English, then you're in the right place and you're going to love our podcast episode today. Welcome to English World with Chris Americos. We are a team of language lovers, expert teachers, and native speakers who are on a mission to help people around the world speak English and show the world their true value. We correct mistakes, practice pronunciation, and explore grammar rules while drinking coffee and having fun. So get comfortable, relax, grab a pen and paper, and welcome to the show. Today's episode is brought to you by English Every Day, an unlimited speaking practice program where you can join live speaking practice lessons with professional native teachers five times every day. There are a lot of courses on the internet and a lot of useful videos too, but the one thing that is missing for most English learners is practice. And if you need speaking practice, then English Every Day is for you. So click the link in the description or go to chrisamericoast.com to learn more today. So today we have Dave with us from Dave's English and didn't start out as an English teacher. This is, you're, you're actually a politician first, right? Or you worked in politics in some capacity. Right. I mean, so I worked in politics. I worked in field politics for nearly 30 years. And so, yes, I wasn't the, the person up there giving the speech. I actually did a data analysis. So I oh, cool. worked on behavior and stuff like that to try to figure out how what motivated people to vote which ways and so I really delved into that and worked in that field for many years and then yeah I made the transition over to being an English teacher um, I had thought about going into academia when it came to uh, political science and mm-hmm. I started my PhD program at the University of Western Ontario, but then I was teaching English at the same time and I was doing that. And I thought stupidly that I would be able to do both of those at the same time, but I realized, okay, if I'm teaching English 30 to 40 hours a week, I'm trying to do a PhD and it's taken nearly that amount of time as well. This just isn't gonna work. So I actually opted for the English teaching instead. and yeah, I mean, I, I, as much as it might sound like a bad choice, it's actually been the right choice. So, um, so yeah, I did work in campaigns and elections. That's the field for, for many, many years. The first thing that comes to my mind is how do you get to that point? Because like when I went at my university, I saw some people who started participating in politics, joining parties and and going to rallies and doing things like that. Uh, I myself wasn't active in that group, but I saw people doing that. And so, you know, I always thought like, how does somebody really go from just studying politics and political science to actually working in a political campaign? I think it's changed from when I did it. And I think that's part of the problem with politics today. Uh, so I first got involved in 1991. I was, I was 16 years old. I was doing my first year of college and my professor um, at college who, it was an intro to political science course. I had always been interested in politics. Um, I was basically the student that was able to answer all the questions because of this interest. And he knew like what political party I was. And he says, hey, listen, 
here is some information about the local party chair. Why don't you go to one of the meetings? Mm -hmm. So back in that time, you, if you wanted to be involved with politics, you actually had to get your butt off the seat, actually go someplace, actually attend an event, and then actually be active in the process instead of just sitting at a keyboard and typing all day long. And that is the change. So as far as political involvement or participation now, it has changed because it really doesn't require any, any movement. It doesn't require you to do anything. Um, that, could be, that could be good, but I think it's, it has really become more detrimental to politics because um, as undemocratic as this sounds, Sometimes some voices shouldn't be elevated over others. And what's happened with social media and all that is that you start seeing um, things that are just not true. In fact, I was watching a uh, video from uh, Kangaroo English where he was talking about more people now believe the world is flat and stuff like this than before. And it's perpetrated through this social media and political climate that we have today. So as far as me, I... I got involved because of a professor and then had to be active and actually go to things and participate. But now, yeah, it, it, it's changed. So I, I don't know how to answer that question today. I could answer it back in 1991, though. So maybe it's the same, though, like become as active as possible. Right. And I guess it depends on where what space that activity is in. Uh huh. Okay. If uh, like in mine, it was actually going into an office or campaign office, doing the work, doing everything, um, traditional work. Now, of course, you can do a lot of that remotely. And I, up till very recently, did a lot of consulting as well. As a matter of fact, this month was the first month that I actually shut down my political consulting website. Oh, wow. Uh, totally on English. Uh, because I still did that. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I think that the way in which we participate is different, but it also creates different characters who are participating and maybe not all having the best intentions, but, you know. Right. So social media has the power to amplify negative things. And I mean, I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit today, uh, you know, how that even applies to the English realm and and what's happening here but um the last time when we when we talked you mentioned like oh the english stuff that's nothing compared to what i dealt with in politics um yeah. people have a lot of negative impressions of politics right and what are some of those things that maybe you experienced from the inside that made you want to have a career shift or that you know people should look out for or you, you know like what are those things is that real is it just a stereotype? Is it, is it a myth? What do you have to say about that? Okay, so yeah, I guess, I guess it depends on what aspect you're, where you're looking at it from. So you have politics and just the game of politics and what you have. Then you have the business of politics. And I was very much on the business end of politics. So I wasn't the one out there, you know, making the speeches and cheering and all that. I was the one sitting in the office at a desk doing data analysis about what precincts what voters we should target, you know, which universes we should go after and whatnot. 
And in 2016, there was a fundamental shift. And it's not because of the election of 2016. It was some, and I think it has to do with the changing of politics in general and who participates. It went from political consultants and people wanting data to make informed decisions to then wanting data that confirmed their biases. So I'm basically an expert in Florida politics. So I know a lot of the state house and state senate districts in the in in Florida. And you would have a client come to me or consultant for that client say, "Hey, we want numbers that can show that this candidate can win." And it's like, "Well, just the numbers aren't there. I'm sorry. I'm not I'm not going to change the data for it to to right. see that. And this is what became the transition. I even remember in 2016, I was working for a campaign in the Chicagoland area, up in the Chicagoland area, and they wanted me to start doing this. And I said, no, I, I'm not going to do this. And that was the second to last political campaign that I worked on. And I quit on the spot. I drove back to my home that I have where I am right now in Southern Illinois. And I decided you know, I can't do this business anymore. I can't work in politics anymore because there's so much pressure on me to give people wrong information to confirm their biases instead of giving them right information. I was driving on I-57 back down to where I lived. I said, what can I do that I can like feel really good about something? And then I said, well, you know, I'm going to join the Peace Corps. So I ended up signing up to join the Peace Corps. And prior to that, I had lived in Montreal. I got my master's degree from McGill University. And when I lived in Montreal, I helped some French Canadian students with their English. Nothing big, nothing huge, but I did tell them that I had English teaching experience. So that began the, um, you know, the road toward teaching English. And I went to Tbilisi, Georgia. Unfortunately, I only lasted three weeks there because the host family I was with was absolutely horrible. And I was just like, you know, living with these people and all that, that that's just not for me. I love Tbilisi. I love the city, but like just doing this isn't for me, but the English teaching was, and then that just started the road down making this my profession. So um, that that's that transitional moment. And like I said, I can remember being on I-57, driving back down, saying, what do I want to do? And just be, I'm going to go into Peace Corps and teach English. That's such a, an, an inspiring story because I think a lot of people see things that are wrong but don't make a decision to get out of it. Or, you know, it's easy for anyone, I think, to fall into a confirmation bias trap. And that could even be like your job saying, well, now the thing that we're doing is questionable but I've been here for 10 years. So do I try to justify it and, and say like, well, this is just what we do or do I exit and change my life? And you chose the, the hard way. I, I would say. I had done that for 28 years. That was the problem. I mean, I, as far as, as far as the manipulation of data to have it say what people want, yeah, that is a recent phenomenon, but as far as just the political environment itself, um, 
you know, and you really, especially since 2000, I would say four, um, a lot had changed where you, you started seeing politics going from a debate of ideas to red team versus blue team. And this is where I really started feeling like I want to get out of this because I'm not okay. I mean, I'll just admit it. I'm on the blue team. And I was like, I didn't want to be an only a blue team player. I mean, yes, I only wanted to work for those candidates and do that. But it was like, it came to the point where, and, it, and it's getting to an extreme point now, that criticism of anything within, in the blue team is kind of forbidden and probably in the red team as well. It's unlike sports. I mean, in, in sports, if you know, I'm a Bears fan and the quarterback sucks you know i can easily say that the quarterback's horrible and a lot of people agree with you but in politics it's even worse than that you cannot say that there's a flaw with the candidate or there's a flaw with the way in which uh we view an issue because i'm very much not in line with all of the issues with my political party and so it became this extremely rigid almost drinking the kool-aid type of atmosphere that started in 2004, which really gave me the first signs of, I need to get out of this. But mm -hmm. of course, it wasn't until 12 years later until I actually finally made that jump. The way you described it reminds me of how people typically describe like the communist party. That's how they typically describe it and try to say like, oh, they're bad and we're good and look at these qualities that they have. But it sounds like what you're describing now is basically that our political parties are pretty much the same. Yeah, I could say I could say they're different ideologically, but they have the same mentality of that you need to stay within these certain parameters, which I think is the reason why a place like France that has significantly more political parties and actually has a first round election followed by a second round election actually fosters more democratic ideas. Um, but this seems to be kind of an American phenomenon because I um, study Canadian politics and French politics closely. And while you do see some fringes doing this, you, you can easily, the idea of, well, let's take the electoral map um, in the United States. You look at the electoral college map every four years, it's essentially the same with a few changes here or there. If you look at an election in Canada, many times the, the map can drastically change. Um, same thing with the UK, same thing with France. So you see people making independent decisions based on that. But again, we also are a country, and this is something you really don't see. You maybe see it with the Tories, the conservatives in the UK. We're the only country where people identify as a Democrat or a Republican. Instead of saying, I vote for a Democrat or I vote for a Republican, they say, I am this or I am that. I think that's where the big flaw is, actually. That's so true. I never thought about that before, but that's spot on. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's so close to their identity. And it can, and that, and therefore, any attack on this set of ideas that I identify with is an attack on my identity and therefore an attack on me. And that that's why people will react so personally to these attacks, right? Absolutely. And that's absolutely it. That's it. Exactly. Spot on. Okay.
you, so you, you talked about going to Georgia and that was three weeks, but I know that that's not where the story ends. So tell us a little bit about like where you went after that and your adventures in English teaching. So I came back from Georgia, but then I decided I was going to do this. And I ended up working on one more campaign in 2017, a special election in the state of Utah, which um, I, I actually lived in Utah for a little bit of time. My first years of university were at the University of Utah. So it was nice to go back there and do that. But then that was the last campaign that I have ever worked on was 2017. After that, I decided in, at the, in early 2018, I did my last experimentation of do I want to be in politics? After a few months, I realized, no, I decided to spend all of my time and effort to retool myself to work in English. So uh, at the end of 2018, I went to Montreal to get my CELTA. So I got my certificate in, um, from Cambridge University. And then after that, I just started applying to jobs. I started doing online teaching through Verbling and italki. And then I just said, you know what? I want to experience what it's like to live in a different place. So I applied to the Murmansk Language School in Murmansk, Russia, and we did the interview and they accepted me. And then I spent five years in Russia. Now, at the same time, I was also building an online client base. And then when I came back to the United States, and that would have been um, June of 2019, I said, okay, I'm going to do online teaching. And it's interesting because a lot of people got into online teaching. I guess that's something we'll talk about later um, during the pandemic. But like I was pre-pandemic and actually getting students. So uh, I saw this as a good way and to have a good business. And, and it was something that at the end of the day on my politics, I could look at myself in the mirror and say, hey, I feel that I'm actually helping somebody. So and, yeah. and now I'm at where I'm at today. So yeah, the, during the, the pandemic period, I'm sure you, like most other businesses in the sphere, saw a huge boost, like lots of students coming in, lots of people contacting you. Not as much. It, for me, it was just kind of plateaued. So it okay. was, yeah, so it wasn't necessarily that I got a lot during the pandemic. I got a lot before, um, and then it just maintained during the pandemic. And a lot of those students I still have today. So um, yeah, the pandemic didn't, uh, didn't necessarily benefit me. Um, obviously it didn't hurt me, but it didn't benefit me. And I think that's just because I had been doing it before the pandemic hit, before honestly the, the market got flooded. And there are a few factors as to why the market got flooded, but it, it did. And you know, I was lucky to be at the right place at the right time. So do you think there's space in this market for newcomers, for people who are just starting out? Yeah. And I think this is the big thing about online teaching. And I think, you know, we're going to be coming to that later on about talking about the online space is, um, yeah, I think if you are a new teacher, this is kind of a good time to come in because a lot of the people who did this as a passive income during the pandemic have now just been all washed away. And, yeah. and, a, and the quality of those teachers were horrible. I mean, I was hearing from my students how bad some of these were. It was like, they would say, hey, can you explain uh, present perfect continuous to me? And they go, oh, I don't know. That's just how we say it in English. And it's like, oh, that's, 
Okay, well, anybody can do that job. I mean, if you can speak English and your answer to everything is just, oh, well, that's how we do it in English. Like literally anybody can do that. It reminds me of my very first day teaching English, like my very first lesson that I taught. And someone asks me a question and, you know, I go to that go-to answer that you would say if you didn't have teaching experience or hadn't been trained as a teacher, you would just say, well, that's how we say it. That's how it is in English. That's just the way it is. And like now looking back, it's just such a dead giveaway. It's like anytime somebody says that, just go look for a rule, go look for an explanation, at least find some kind of story or mnemonic device to link whatever you're talking about. Like there's always a strategy. So (laughs) that is actually a big problem, not with English teaching, but I think life in general. And I said this in one of my videos that I've now removed, not because of this, but just kind of the tone of it. I didn't like it and I didn't want it out there. Um, is that you, it should be a, a teacher should say, hey, listen, I don't know the answer to that. Let me get back to you and find out the answer to this question. Because again, we, yeah. all the teachers don't know everything about grammar. And if you look at the linguistic, the people, the linguists in grammar, there is a debate as to how we should look at grammar. So, I mean, right. there's an agreement in the linguistic community about how this is. You look at Noam Chomsky and then you look at other people, you're going to hear all these variations as to how grammar operates and how we should look at it. But I think the strength is if a teacher can say, hey, listen, I don't know what that is. Let me find out. And so many people just, because they're afraid, they're afraid that if you have a student there and you say, I don't know what it is, that then they'll lose that student because they'll think that, oh, this person doesn't know what it is. And you have to have the strength to do that. Yeah, yeah, that's, my two pet peeves are teachers saying that they just absolutely don't know or otherwise saying that's just the way it is. And the second one is, like confidently stating something that you know nothing about, <laughs> right? Like like teaching a new rule, grammar rule that doesn't exist. Like I've seen that happen before too. Oh yeah, so have I. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's the video that I took down, but, it, but again, it was more about the tone. I don't take back anything I say. And actually, um, and then because I'm trying to determine the direction of my channel, uh, I got into this, this, you know, I started researching about modal verbs and the concept of modal verbs. And it just got me into kind of this, um, you know, kind of into this research of what grammar actually is. And it's making me kind of change my approach as to how I want to teach and how I'm going to look at doing things going forward. Because a lot of people think that grammar is some set structure of rules, which I mean, for the most part, it is. There are agreed upon things that we have. Like if you want to say something in continuous form with a subject and a present participle, you have to have the to be verb. You have to say, I am working. That is an agreed upon rule of grammar. But the concept of grammar, what grammar actually is, was not something invented, it is something that was discovered. We had been speaking grammatically for hundreds and hundreds of years, but it wasn't until 1586 
when somebody looked and said there's a grammatical structure to English. And when we talk about modal verbs, modal verbs, the, the term modal verb hasn't been around as far as the academic linguistic world until since 1933. That's when it that's when it came out. So the concept of a modal verb within our grammatical structure as we know it today has been around less than 100 years. So though we have used it for hundreds of years, almost thousands of years. That's a good point. Right. And because so and, and these yeah. terms change sometimes too. Like over time they've renamed them and they've decided to classify things differently. And so like for example, articles, right? So um when we go in to talk about phrasal verbs, like originally they were calling these small pieces of of the word uh, that, that are attached to the phrasal verb they're calling them prepositions because typically they were prepositions but then they were like oh but wait there's other stuff that they do so now we're going to call them particles and then they're like oh but an article is an article a particle is does it do something similar and then they, there's like a whole debate over like what do you call this thing in the in the phrasal verb uh, is it a particle or what do you call it? And then books teach it in different ways with different words. And then even grammar around verb tenses, right? Like, is it present continuous or is it present progressive? And, and these kinds of things. So like the naming changes and, uh, yeah. So, so with modal verbs, it's interesting to hear, you know, how far that goes back uh and getting deep into i i nerd out on etymology usually i'll you know see some word somewhere and then i'll be like but where does that come from and found out that so many of our like short words like run hit they come from like scandinavian languages and, and from the vikings basically and uh so it's so cool to just see the the influence and to learn more about the language, in this case, English, but whatever language somebody's learning, you also are learning languages, right? So when you lived in Russia, you picked up some of the language and now you've moved on to another language, right? I have been learning French for quite a while now. So that's the one that I mostly learn. Um, as far as Russia, even though I lived there, I I knew it was, a. I, I had always been interested in living there, um, but I knew it was a temporary proposition. I knew that I was going to be leaving in the middle of June. So I didn't spend as much time picking up um, Russian as much as I did actually going to a cafe and, and doing political consulting work at that time. So I would do online languages, but there'd be somebody who would give me a project to do. So I would just focus on that. So uh, that was the, the main reason why I didn't. Um, but then, yeah, French I've been doing a while. Um, Slovak is where I'm picking up now because my family is originally from Slovakia. They are, um, you know, my great-grandparents immigrated from there in 1905. And so I've always had an interest in uh, Slovak, especially considering we have Czechoslovakia and Slovak. For some reason, there's some like kind of, we feel like we're the smaller little brother of the Czech Republic. So there's an extra bit of pride in that. So yeah, so I just started doing that. I'm going to be going to Bratislava in a little over a week. And to it's do an and yeah, so we'll see how that goes. 
So what are some of the difficulties in learning Slovak? Well, I think each person has their own difficulty. I think the thing for me is going to be mostly pronunciation. Um, I'm somebody that when it comes to grammatical structure and grammar, I, once I know it, I know it. I feel very comfortable with it. I just don't have the patience sometimes to just sit and memorize words. Okay, so I can know grammar, but it's just like, I don't want to learn vocabulary because there's just thousands of words. I just don't want to sit here each and every day and like put it in my head. So it's going to probably be vocabulary as well, because that has been the hindrance I've had when it comes to French is just the lack of vocabulary because, you know, I have other stuff I have to do. I can't just sit there and study French all day long. Um, but I think that's going to be it because even with Russian, it's like, if I say, uh, you know, yes, nayu, like, znayu, um, it took me like a week to learn how to pronounce that because this n is just something we don't have in English. So it's just like, I look at the word in Russian. I'm like, how does that work? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and so that's why I think, and, and the pronunciation for Slovak is very similar. I mean, all Slavic countries kind of have the same pronunciation and in, in, in a lot of similarities. So I think pronunciation and just having the discipline to learn vocabulary, really. Yeah, but you're going there, so you'll have a lot of exposure and you'll probably learn a lot of vocabulary through just living there and, and interaction with people. And that's like, I think that's what everybody searches for, right? Like, how can I just take that shortcut and go straight to the active vocabulary without having to pack my head with all the passive vocabulary? Well, and actually, I am going to actually try to use this as a, a stepping stone to kind of test the input hypothesis and start focusing. I'm going to say, hey, listen, I don't know much with Slovak right now. Um, I mean, just very, very simple phrases. But I want to spend the next year to really do language acquisition and to look at comprehensible input and, and do the input hypothesis, go back to Slovakia in a year and see how that actually works as far as being able to communicate with people. So I am doing this to learn it, but I'm also going to do an experiment to see how these other hypotheses of learning, which, oh, there really is a split in the YouTube English or language learning world. There's this English, oh, here are the rules, here's this, here's that. Then you have these other channels that talk about the methods of learning, the methods of comprehending, understanding, or acquiring a language. And it just seems like sometimes that they're just two different worlds. And I usually find the other world much more fascinating than, hey, here's a list of five vocabulary words today. So since you're learning languages, you've learned several, you've studied several languages and, and you're learning Slovak now. And so you're a language learner yourself, in addition to being a teacher. And how do you feel when you make a mistake and somebody corrects you? I mean, that's what you should do. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's, I mean, I get, I guess it depends on who is correcting you and for what reason. And the okay. context, right? Right, in the context, because even, even in English nowadays, um, I get this from my students, and as, as native English speakers, we probably notice this, the whole who, whom, um, <laughs> right? It's like, should you say who or should you say whom? And nowadays in English, it almost, like amongst native speakers, it's almost like 
the whole idea of whom has been dropped and yeah. that we say who. And I think if I said, if I said who is an, is an object and you said it to me or whatever, we probably wouldn't say anything, but you do have those people who are like, no, that is whom you should have used whom there because it is, you know, the object of the sentence, not the subject. And right. so I guess it's the intention as well. But if I'm learning a language, that's the goal, but I want to make sure and, and see, this is where I have to have total trust in the teacher is because I need to make sure that they're teaching me the correct thing. If they're not, then that harms my progress because I go through life and I go through my whole learning experience thinking this is the way it's said, this is the way it's done, this is the grammatical structure, and then I actually find out it is. And so this is why having a teacher that knows things, that can explain things and explain why certain things happen will give you much more confidence because when you're not that native speaker, you have to rely on what somebody else says. You, you, because you, you have no, no other point of reference as to whether something's right or wrong. So right. it's important to correct, but it's also important who is the person doing the correcting. Right. And the who whom question, it's like if a student says, who are you talking to? Is the teacher going to correct them and say, no, you're supposed to say, to whom are you talking? Like, it's going to sound strange to us. And even though it might be taught as that is the correct way, because in this case, who is the object, <laughs> right? So, like, how does a learner know when to question and what to question? It's kind of a difficult thing. Like, putting myself in the shoes of I'm learning Spanish right now and like, how would I know, right? And, and, you know, that going back to what Noam Chomsky said about, ling you know, linguistics and all, it's like, you know, what is the correct way? The correct way is the way in which native speakers speak it. Okay, so it's not a necessarily a set rule or a set group of rules when it comes to grammar. And again, like I said, grammar is something that was discovered. It wasn't invented. It wasn't just someone one day created the whole grammar structure and said, hey, now everyone use this. It is that it is the discovery of certain things as we speak. And the grammar, I mean, all these grammar books that I have up here are somebody's interpretation of what they believe the grammatical structure is. It's not like it is set in stone. Again, there are agreed upon things, but when learning um, as a second language, if you're learning something else, yeah, you have to have total trust in that. And again, you know, yeah, there are the advanced grammar books. And if you're writing, doing some academic writing, which I've done before, I've had, I have academic publications. Um, the way in which I write is different th than how I speak. And I think that is a huge problem with the YouTube teaching community is there is, I wouldn't even say there's a blurred line, but there's a non-existent line between how one writes and how one speaks. And a lot of these learn this vocabulary type of videos that we see out there are more focused towards writing and just stuff you would never say, like if you and I are talking to each other. Coming to this topic of, you know, the, the online English teaching space, YouTube and all of this, like, how do you feel it's going? I've asked this question to, I think, 
more than half of the people on this podcast. So like, how do you think that the the current environment is? Is it positive, negative? Is things to be changed, improved, or or everything's just going as usual? It's just YouTube. We should just accept it. What do you think? Well, I mean, there's, okay, so the, I, I would say there's two online environments. So you have YouTube, and then you have things like italki and other things. So I think there is this huge holistic um, world of English teaching. And, and, you know, you take something like italki, for example, and you've really seen that being a, a platform that has created a race to the bottom yeah. that is creating you're you're seeing so many bad teachers on there you're seeing italki approved teachers who say they're a native english speaker but aren't and again having a non-native teacher is fine but when somebody says that they are and they aren't that's deception yeah people on there saying they're professional teachers without any professional qualifications uh like because according to italki you're supposed to upload them and it says if they're uploaded and and it's really creating this race at the bottom so that becomes something. But as far as the, the YouTube community and, you know, do they have to deal with it? Does it have to be positive? I, I even think that you have to split that up as well, because I think you have those who are teachers and those who are YouTubers talking about English. And Bro. this goes back to the fact that I really don't think you're an English teacher unless you're getting feedback from students. Now, I talk to students one-on-one -on -one every day. I mean, that, that's just what I do. And, you know, when they say something, I then can notice the common problem that they have. Um, and then I can explain that, which is the, you know, I made a video about um, the, the, 13 mistakes that, that Russian speakers make. And those mistakes are, you know, based on my thousands of hours of experience working with Russian, Ukrainian, Belarusian students and seeing the commonalities they have in that. It wasn't just, ah, I think that this is a mistake. I'll just watch some YouTube videos, some guy, Russian guys speak in English and then say, these are the common mistakes. And I think another problem with YouTube, and I got a whole list of them, so I could probably go on. <laughs> um, We're going to air out all the dirty laundry today. <laughs> right, right. I mean, and this is kind of like where my channel is going. And I think it, it, and I asked the poll, I'm like, should, should I be doing this content or not? 75% said yes. So I'm going to keep going with it is um, it's creating an environment. This don't say this, don't say that word. Um, sound like a native English speaker is creating an environment which makes the language less flexible and is making it very rigid. And with that rigid aspect to it, it all of a sudden changes whether you're using the right words. Like I saw a video, and I'm going to be doing a video about this, that said instead of using and you're a native English speaker, so you can relate to this. Instead of using the word very lazy, use the word indolent. Now, let me ask you, how often, how often in your life have you used the word indolent? Oh, okay. man. Yeah. I mean, I, I've used it more talking about this video than I have my entire existence on this. <laughs> and it's kind of like, and again, going back to what we were saying earlier, somebody who doesn't know the language 
is going to think that this is an appropriate way or appropriate word to replace for very easy. They're going to go around saying that they're indolent. And indolent is just not a word that is commonly used. It can be confused right. with other words. What if someone thinks you're saying they're impotent? Okay, right. that would be very different than saying you're indolent or very lazy. So it can create this. And yeah. And that's one of the problems I find is that there are a lack of actual teachers on YouTube. It's people teaching and reading something in a book or reading something and then just explaining it. Now, I could read a book by Neil deGrasse Tyson. I can read the book. I could understand the book. I can create a YouTube, a YouTube video explaining everything in the book that doesn't make me an astrophysicist. Right. Okay. If somebody comes up to me and says, Dave, and, and then ask me some question about astrophysics, I'm not going to be able to, to answer that. And it's not that it's not going to be one of these, oh, well, I don't know. Let me get back to you. It's just, I fundamentally don't have um, the ability to answer that. And I think that's what happens with a lot of English channels is they give us a lot of information. And that, and that information meant a lot of times is correct, but, you know, I don't know how much they understand beyond just explaining what it is because they don't see errors being made in real world context with students. I think this is where the ba big backlash is coming from. It's not necessarily are things negative or positive. I think it's coming more from this whole idea of correcting errors or not. And all of a sudden when people are correcting errors, it, it, it now puts other people who have been doing this for a while in a defensive way. Uh -huh. so, and maybe they don't have the pedagogical foundational education or knowledge. And, and that's where some of this anger comes in that the people who have, uh, you know, invested time energy to learn this stuff have been teaching for a long time they see things that don't really fit and and call them out and um so i guess that's where the next question comes up like where do we draw the line then between education entertainment business because we see a mix of that on youtube and on the internet overall um some people are on there teaching lessons straight up just a lesson some people just record a lesson and throw it on there like okay that's education but uh entertainment there's a lot of videos like in and these ones i think that we've been talking about now don't say this don't say that you know some people are correcting other mis other people's mistakes calling them out it's entertaining and then some people are saying hey i can teach you english just buy this course and and so we've got this mix of stuff happening there. Where do we draw the line? Okay, so we have three things. We have education, entertainment, business. Um, maybe we talk about the business aspect of it because, you know, unless we're volunteering for the Peace Corps, it's a business for everyone, right? It's a business for me. It's a business for you. And, you know, it's just our business. And I think, I think it depends on what your business wants to be. Like, do you want to be entertaining or do you want to be educational? That, I guess is where it is as far as but, but I, I would say that a lot of uh educators tell themselves and tell other people 
I'm not here for the money. This isn't a business. They they think of themselves as very far removed from business, even if they are selling themselves to a school to teach to teach at that school, then they're selling themselves and selling their time through that school. Even if they're even if they teach in students one on one, a lot of them just refuse to identify at all with this word business. Right. I mean, and you might not be in a business, but you get like you could be a teacher working for a school. Um, you're still getting a paycheck. You're still not going in there and doing it free every week. I mean, and and so at the end of the day, when we when we spend our time and do the you know make the effort to actually create something to then put on the internet or a lesson plan or if I'm talking one on one with somebody, you know, we're doing that at the end of the day for a paycheck or for business or whatever. Um, now there are people in in this comes to where I come in is I, I now like doing this. So therefore there can be an enjoyment in doing it. But if I made zero dollars in it, I probably would go back to politics because, you know, I got to pay for the roof over my head and the electricity and everything like yeah. that. So at the end of the day, it is a business. Um, but now what is the difference between entertainment and education? I guess you can look at it as, you know, the value you get from something okay and and maybe the accuracy of that value so um if i do a fancy dance on tiktok right is that education or entertainment well no i mean like i i mean it's 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 i guess i guess you're depending it depends on what you're looking at it for right i would say it's more entertainment i would say entertainment is something where are you receiving educational value from it? You might be receiving knowledge from it, but is it going towards some goal? So like I will get into, you know, this long, you know, I'll, I'll watch something on YouTube. So recently I've been watching these channels about these guys who are scuba divers who try to solve cold cases by finding cars that they think might've gone in the lakes and, and find the people who were in there. And I get into this and I'm learning about the, the process and what they do and all that. And it's entertaining, but it's not like I'm now going to use this and then go out and become a scuba diver and do it myself. I'm not, I'm not gaining any expertise on this subject. I'm gaining knowledge on it. And I, I guess I kind of relate this and I have always to the Olympics. How many people when you watch the Olympics are all of a sudden a, an expert in curling. Okay. Like uh, you, you're watching Olympics, you see curling for the first time. And then by the end of the Olympics, you know, all the rules of curling, but then you stop watching the Olympics and you don't know those rules anymore. It doesn't mean that like you're, you, you gain the knowledge from entertainment. It wasn't that you gained the knowledge from wanting to, learn something. And this is, I think, the difference between um, education and, and, um, and entertainment is can that, I, in, oh, go ahead. Can I interject here? Um, because uh, then, like, I, I can try to make a logical conclusion then that uh, if entertainment material content, entertaining content inspires you to action, does that make it educational? I think it makes it inspirational, maybe not educational. Okay. Right. So, um, 
know, when I grew up, I, I wanted to be an airline pilot. Okay, that's that's why, or an astronaut. Okay, I mean, I guess, I, and and this is another thing too that I guess I can talk about being a Gen Xer is that you know you get these trolls who go on YouTube and everything and make all these remarks. Um, Generation X people just have this reputation of just not caring what other people think about them. And so, yes, doing the political stuff, it, it made it that um, it gave me a very thick skin, but it's also from my generation that when people say all of these things under my video, it's like, oh, my generation really, we're, we didn't grow up in an influencer generation or whatever. So I, it's, to me, it's more important to make sure what's out there is right. And yeah, at that point, is it educational or not? Like, I would say that my lessons that I do are purely educational. As far as my videos that I do, I, I wouldn't say, I mean, I'd say some of them are educational. The whole idea is to do that, but um, I wouldn't, I, and I, maybe there needs to be a, a, another category in there, like almost like infomercial or mm -hmm. informational, that it's like, you're not trying to be entertaining but you're also not necessarily trying to do a full-blown course on the difference between, um, you know, past simple and present perfect. If you're talking about something that is recently finished, right? Mm -hmm. And and I think that might be the difference. And I think my videos are are going more toward the genre of being informational and guiding you in directions where you can get the right resources. Um, from a native's point of view to then give to people. Yeah. And people are seeking these things, right? Education, information, entertainment too. Um, a lot of people, and I think that that's one of the things that's come up a lot inside of the discussions in the, in the English teaching industry, or at least related to YouTube is, you know, there's people who are very entertaining and they can, attract a lot of people and you know it's all there's also an element of business there but um with a big audience people are claiming comes a big responsibility and it seems that some of the creators at that level are ready to accept that and some aren't and what do you think is there a level of response like as so so you know your channel my channel we have decent amount of people on there but it could be bigger and so like at what like what's the number what's the magic number where you have to say like okay well now i suddenly became a public persona now i'm you know more than just a guy throwing some videos on there right what's the point i don't know what do you, where do you say as far as being correct zero Okay, I mean, I mean, as far as being correct, um, if I go up there and I say, well, present, you know, present continuous is about an action that happened in the past that cannot be changed. Okay, that is fundamentally an incorrect video. I mean, now I'm taking the extreme to make that point. But if you are, I think it maybe is more about the genre than the subscriber count. But as that subscriber count goes up, I think there might be more of a microscope on people as far as making mistakes. And okay, take uh, English with Lucy, for example. Uh, Kangaroo English, which I think is by far one of the 
best channels when it comes to English. He did a criticism of um, Lucy's channel in which she actually did an apology for it, went back and looked at what had happened. And, and I even think what he was talking about, yes and no, I can agree with what he was saying. He was talking yeah. about different accents. And different, but, you know, I, I think he might've taken it a little bit too far, but she actually took that and said, hey, let me go ahead and review it. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do this. Whereas you have some other channels that can take all of this and instead of actually addressing it head on, they go ahead and just deflect it. Now, um, I think English for Everyone is kind of the one known to kind of, um, you know, you've been at the, at, at the one end of, of some of theirs. And I even said in my video that like your example is specifically what people shouldn't be doing, like looking for every little insignificant thing that could just be a slip of a tongue or something like that. Um, and you made a response and, and, and rightfully so. Um, but there are times where some of these videos are actually making critiques of a mistake on another video, but that creator just says, you know, deflects it. So a lot of their stuff has been about Lingua Marina's channel. And the thing about Lingua Marina's channel for them, they make all of these, instead of Lingua Marina coming out with a video saying, oh, be positive, I do make mistakes. She should have then made a, mis a video saying, listen, English for Everyone makes these mistakes, or these aren't mistakes I made, these are correct, and let me explain why instead of creating some other type of deflective type of answer. And that's what I think is missing here is there are some who are taking responsibility. As a matter of fact, I made a error in a video just yesterday. I made a typo um, and I re-uploaded the video. Everyone's like, why did you re-upload the video? I'm like, because I made a mistake in the previous one. I need to, and it was a typo mistake. So it wasn't something I said. It was just something that I typed and, and I put that in there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess it's, if you get the criticism, your ability to then change, because I think some channels on YouTube are reacting well to it and others are just deflecting it. And, and trying to make something else the issue as to why people like English for Everyone's going after them. Though, again, I mean, I guess that's a whole nother video for a whole nother time, right? <laughs> well, I think, yeah, comparing the reactions and, and everything, um, I guess at some level, PR plays a decent role because, I mean, Lucy's response was just like pure PR. It was just like, yeah. If you had someone in, uh, like, if you had a PR person write this for you, that's exactly what it would sound like, and it, that's how it came across to me. It was just like, but, PR. But you're right. But one thing I have noticed, especially over the last year, is the content of her channel has changed. Yeah. Okay. So she really was instead of "Don't say this, don't say that." I haven't seen one of those videos in a long time. And she has changed that. And she actually did um, talk to Christian 
but again, you know, is, is that damage control instead of NPR, instead of like actually doing it. I have to say that I have seen a change in the channel. So I do think that there have been, that, that there has been some sort of positive feedback from that. It, that change took a little bit longer, maybe. I've noticed this more in the last year, but, um, you know, there's a point where criticizing can be um, beneficial. Then there's a point where it could be both detrimental or vindictive. Yeah. Right? And, and I think that I'm sure I'll get the ire of, of English for everyone because I've now done a video about them. Um, and, and they'll take every little thing I, I say and say it incorrectly. And, you know, once you're vindictive, I don't mind correcting people. And I think that's important. And I think it's important to call out when something is incorrectly done, but somebody is putting it out there to their audience. But when you get to this vindictive point where it looks like you're just going after them, and of course, English for Everyone speaks very slow in their videos. So they make it so that their videos can't be critiqued because they're not going to make these type of mistakes because they're speaking so slowly in their videos that they've created this mechanism to say, ah, try to critique us. Um, but I think there's a point where it comes across as vindictive and you know, is, I, I guess pe some people like that. That goes, I guess being vindictive comes to the ed, um, entertainment point of it. Um, I don't know. But then there are, uh, you know, with all of these channels, I mean, you and I look at it from the, the, the point of view as native English speakers from the United States. What, how people perceive these channels in other countries, and you might know this, delving into the Russian English language world, some of these channels are perceived very differently in Russia than they are perceived in the United States or maybe somewhere else. So, you know, what I say might be, you know, seen as negative by one person, but seen very positive by another person because of the way in which that channel or that person is perceived in that country. Very true. And, um, you know, coming back to Marina and Lucy and their responses to the criticism that they faced, um, you know, Lucy just came across as super professional, ultra, you know, PR'd. Um, and then Marina, when she did speak about the topic, um, it, it just, yeah, it seemed like it took a while to kind of acknowledge it. And then when she did, she said that she had talked to her PR person from the PR point of view, she shouldn't talk any, she shouldn't say anything about it, but that she shares everything with her channel and she's going to talk about it. And then she shared her feelings about it. Um, but it also, you know, this idea of PR. And so like, at what level does a channel really need that to need, do they need to take such a level of responsibility that they need an extra layer of, you know, Q and a, QA, like quality assurance before they put out their messages. And you know what I mean? Like, I don't think all channels that are at, at a million subscribers do that, but at what level do you need that? Because it seems like the people who are closer to the, to the top of the uh, subscriber count in this, in this niche that they think about that they're doing that. And that I think that that shows some kind of um, 
acknowledgement that there's a level of, res of responsibility that has to be taken. Um, but yes, and, and and like we can always go back and talk about the criticisms if they're right or wrong, or to me, it's really irrelevant, like um, what the criticism was. It's if we just analyze, analyze their response. And so I'm not sure if I think that Lucy's like from an from the first glance, Lucy's response is spot on, is exactly, it's perfect. Um, but, you know, as you, as you look at it more, it's kind of like, well, why did she change her whole channel? Why did she give this person attention by making this video? And why did she make, like, why did she listen to what the person said and then make a change? Because, Clearly what she had been doing up to that point was working for her. Um, and then the same thing with, you know, Marina, should she make a change? Like, is she going to make a change? Should she make a change? And, you know, by, by talking, by sharing her feelings about it, by letting it affect her. And I've talked to some other people who have been um, the target of uh, English for everyone. And they've told me something similar that they like, cried or they had or they talked to a psychologist or they tried to find an answer like it personally affected them and so it's like from my point of view i've made plenty of mistakes in my life in videos whatever so like if a person points out my mistake i'm gonna say yeah i made a mistake i'm human so like well what are you gonna say like I, i'm not gonna go like if somebody finds a mistake in the video that i made you know, 10 years ago or whenever I started the channel with like my rapper hat on and like a baggy hoodie and I'm talking about English grammar and I made a mistake. If someone wants to blow that up and say, look, you made a mistake. There's absolutely no way I'm going to take the video down. There's absolutely no way I'm going to even lose a wink of sleep over it. I'm just going to say, I made a mistake. We're talking about languages. Everybody makes mistakes. Right. And, and like with mine, I, I, unlisted one recently and like i said it wasn't even for the content it was just for the tone i didn't like that i was doing in it because it was being i i guess may it, it was seeming vindictive and it was against the people who i say are kind of seeming like they're vindictive now and so i know i've used the word vindictive a lot in this video but um <laughs> But, but yeah, I, and, and I think that's the truth. Like what Lucy, I, I mean, but I at least give her the credit for making a change. Um, and you, you know, back to what you're saying about what, what you were talking about with PR um, and the role of PR. Um, one channel, I will admit that I have really become disappointed in is Rachel's English because I think her channel when it started off and for a long time was a, an excellent resource for pronunciation that I would give the videos of hers to my students and say, watch these videos. But now she has kind of, I mean, just look at the thumbnails, look at everything else, look at how they're produced. She's kind of gone into this other direction of it being instead of educational, like a YouTube channel, and even maybe a little bit more, you know, a mix between educational and, and entertaining. But I just noticed that 
she has now delved more into the sound like a native English speaker. Don't say this. Don't say that. Those are the things that I, I hate the most. I mean, I really hate that because what you are telling, what you are telling a language learner is first, you have to sound like a native English speaker. Second, you have to use these words if you want to do it. And third, if you don't do that, if you don't sound like that, then you might not be accepted. There'll be discrimination. And if you're coming to the United States or talking to someone in the United States, there are thousands or millions of ways in which we pronounce just I, you know, regionally or because people come from other countries. That's just the makeup of the United States. And that is why I hate these don't say this and don't say that videos, because it's creating, it's going back to that rigidness aspect of it. It's creating a rigid way instead of a, a flowing language as it should be. And so, yeah, something like Rachel's English, I think is something where PR didn't play a role. It was purely educational video, uh, videos that she had. And as it has increased in popularity, it seems to have been more commercialized or that it seems like it's done more by a staff than it is just by someone who wants to do that. And, and I think that's a shame. Um, and yeah, I mean, these are the ones that get a lot of hits, but I think, I think a lot of people have a lot of um, um, subscribers or views just because they've been in the genre for a long time. I mean, really, I've been doing this for two years and prior to the recent videos I had, I put up like eight videos, okay? It's like, I didn't really take it seriously until now. Um, but yeah, I think PR, I mean, obviously PR is important and I guess PR isn't bad if you're trying to maybe advertise yourself, trying to get more subscribers, get more viewers, get more um, students or whatever. But when it starts becoming like an aspect of damage control, then I guess then you have to really reflect on what you have. Probably that is the more appropriate uh, like line of thinking here because it's probably not that they got in trouble and then sought PR. They had PR, that's how they got there. And so, you know, if we look at both Lucy and Marina and then a good handful of other large channels, they've done a lot of really good PR work to get in front of a lot of people. I mean, Lucy's get Lucy gets published in uh you know publications that are viewed by millions of people like the Daily Mail and uh Lingua Marina's face is on the front of vidIQ's website and she's been uh you know written about in a lot of articles uh, for her story of moving to Silicon Valley and all of this and so um they've both done a lot of work to get in front of people um that stuff doesn't just happen magically and i think that is something a lot of people who who watch overlook is that there's been a lot of effort put into being the face that everyone sees and right and i mean i mean there's been a lot of now i try and maybe i can say it on here because it, it it's a podcast it's not like my channel or whatever. <laughs> I try to keep my channel toward the English aspect of it. But like what Lingua Marina's channel, um, she had a video about how she came to the United States. And she said, 
that she came to the United States with $2,000 and then she got a $100,000 loan. And, but she lived in moved to Silicon Valley. Now, anyone would know that $2,000 moving to Silicon Valley would last you about 10 minutes. Okay. Yeah. You, you really can't even, even back when she moved there, you couldn't afford rent. You couldn't put the first and last month's rent. You couldn't afford to put food on the table or whatever. And then the whole thing about that she got a $100,000 loan to start her company and start her YouTube channel. And it's like, well, if you're coming here as an immigrant with no, with no job, no credit history, and you go to try to get a $100,000 loan, um, and you only have $2,000 to your name at that time, um, just there was just something in this story that did not add up to me. I'm mm -hmm. like, no, no, I, like if I had $2,000 in my bank account right now and I went, you know, I went over to Bank of America, say, give me a $100,000 loan for my uh, business. They go, what do you have? Oh, well, I have no credit history and $2,000 in the bank. They're going to tell me to take hike, right? And this is, this is one, and, and I try to keep the, the channel to English, but this is something that makes me think there was more involved with like the money aspect to it. Like, did she have other collateral or other things that helped her make this? I mean, if I had a hundred thousand dollars to start off my YouTube channel as you know, you probably would, would say as well. I mean, our, our channels might look totally different, right? And our <laughs> subscriber count might look different, but, um, and so the way that she got there, whatever, I just say it's fishy, but I guess it goes to how she got there. I, I don't care. Well, it's can, can I, can I jump in here about this part about how she got there? Because, um, you know, as a marketing person, like it's really important to have your myth, your story of, of building up you as the hero of the story and the one with the solution and the one who has the answer to sell the product. And so, you know, it's, it's a good story. Like yeah. started with two grand, got a hundred thousand dollar loan, started my business. Look how successful I became. It's great. I use something similar when I have a coaching program for teachers and I tell them the story of how I was in Russia started the offline business in Russia with $2,000, same number, $2,000. And boom, set up that business and then grew that and boom, 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 boom. And then everything came from that, right? So um, it's just like a really good story to tell people to be like, you can start from nothing and you can have that, right? So like in my story- You can start with $2,000 and, and do yeah, that. So you like can. There's a realistic aspect to that. Whereas I moved to Silicon Valley with $2,000. You're not paying your rent and deposit in that first month. You're, you're just not. I mean, that's the part. It's like just that premise alone, forget the loan or anything like that. If you're going to San Francisco with only two or the Bay Area with only $2,000, you're not going to last long. But yeah, yeah, I mean, like your story actually has a, it's inspirational, but has realism connected to it. When we talk about how she got there, she, I think the story doesn't include some things, which is fine because it's a story that's supposed to serve a certain purpose. But, uh, you know, she definitely had assets in Russia that she could 
uh, fall back on. And then when she, and I, I believe she moved there with her husband or, or then maybe they weren't married at the time. So, but then as, as far as I recall, I don't want to speculate or, or give false information, but as far as I recall, she got into a deal with a Russian guy who was an investor in Silicon Valley. And he became one of the co-founders, basically like the, the silent partner, or the, you know, the, the non-public face of the company and owns a majority share or at least a large share of Lingua Trip and also her channel, like the monetization of her channel. And uh, I'm not, you know, of course, I haven't seen that deal, but I also think it includes brand deals that she gets. So, um, you know, she went the route of a startup. And that's what they wrote about her for, that this is an example of treating a YouTube channel as a startup. And a lot of those stories that they wrote about her kind of neglected the, the fact that it's not really about the channel. It's about the business that the channel was promoting and, you know, setting that up to take over the market of foreign language study, of study abroad programs, that right. they were really well positioned for that. And in Russia, that's what happened. They became like just the name, like a go-to name. Oh, I want to go on an academic trip. I want to go study abroad. I want to do this in, in whatever country. And that they were constantly adding these programs to their website. That was, I mean, it was a really good idea. And she got to ride that wave. And right. it's that monetization that allowed her to put her face everywhere. Um, because if you really want to blow up, you need to be able to spend a lot of money and get a profit from spending that money. But the side benefit is that your face is everywhere on the ads that people see or in, in the promotion that people see. So, um, you know, it wouldn't hurt to have a powerful co-founder who could call a couple people, connect you with someone and boom, your face is getting in the places it needs to be. I'm not saying that like I, I don't I definitely don't want to discount what Marina and her husband have done to make this successful because uh, they've put in a ton of work. And, um, you know, I just think that sometimes, um, the, you know, there's a marketing story, stories sell things. And from politics, I, I imagine it's the same thing. Stories are what win campaigns and. Uh, Right. So, so, so that's her story. The reality around it might be whatever, but, um, but I really think that at some level, maybe some of the people who are criticizing them are angry that they don't have what those creators have, that it's envy. Right. And see that, that goes back to what I said about the, the, at least for me, I think, and I could probably say this for maybe like, kangaroo english as well is like and i don't know what generation is but he's probably around my edge like if you're from the generation x you know environment where we didn't grow up around subscribers and this that and the other um you know we just don't care okay i you know i don't get into this to try to get a bunch of subscribers do i want to get as many as possible yes because why not but it's like, that's not what the driving force is. The driving, you know, and, and this is something that I've had to ask myself as far as my English teaching business. 
is, you know, where do I want it to go? What do I want it to look like in five, 10 years from now? And for me, as of right now, I am totally fine with doing 30 hours a week, one-on-one -on -one lessons, and just adding a YouTube video or two, and I'm content. I mean, it's just like, that is exactly what I want. That'll give me the life I want. It got 30 hours a week uh, of work and maybe some with YouTube. The rest of it, I can go out and be with my friends, be with my family, do the things um, that I like. And I, and I guess it always goes into, you know, what your goals and what your needs are. And yeah, I mean, with Lingua Marina's channel, it's like, I don't tell people not to look at the other things, like how she learned English and stuff like that, because the proof is in the pudding. Okay, she might have said, I learned it this way, you should learn it this way too. And I actually think that those are valuable because she can talk about her experience. I guess the point is, is there this full circle of this is how I learned it, here is the product, purchase the product. Um, again, we're all in businesses, that makes sense. I just wanna make sure that whatever product that she's promoting actually presents the method in which she learned. And the thing is, is if she says she's been learning since she was four years old, I mean, you got to realize that, that is 20 some years of English exposure. Um, your English level is going to be much better compared to, and especially if you have a interest in it compared to somebody who's starting Slovak next week. Okay. I mean, it's just, it's just the reality of it. I only mentioned the business thing because I think it's maybe a little bit more of, you know, telling the truth and, and really what you're saying, kind of where her channel comes from, whereas mine and yours comes from the aspect of English and then becomes something instead of using, and, and I guess this comes down to one of my big beefs is using English to then become famous realize, hey, there's a bunch of people out here that want to learn English. I just throw something up. I have everything look nice. I look well and, you know, I bet, and all that. I mean, I, I will say that kind of what I do want to aspire to be in this is the anti-lingua marina as far as American culture and stuff like that. It's like, hey, here I am, the 50-year-old guy that's growing a beard, that's going to go to a baseball game, have you know, have a beer and a hot dog and, and, you know, my car is a Kia. It's just like, it's not, it's not, we're going to be on a, we're going to be driving to Maybach and we're going to be um, going on a private plane. No, we're taking Southwest airlines. Okay. So it's, it, it, and, and it kind of creates this reality aspect to it because I do believe one of the problems with her channel, because she kind of intertwines them. Yes, it's English, but she does put this aspect of living and, and being rich um, in Silicon Valley type of idea, it's just kind of like how Americans, the average American lives in this country. And I think there are a lot of people who are learning the language that don't necessarily want that Silicon Valley idea. They're like, hey, you know, what is a cross-country trip like? You know, what's it like going to a truck stop and doing something? I, I think there's a lot of curiosity for that. That's what I actually want to bring in the cultural part of my channel. Language and culture are always connected. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to have this chat today, Dave. It's always a great talk with you every time. Um, tell everybody where they can find you. Okay. So 
um, you can take one-on-one -on -one lessons with me at davesenglish.com. Uh, just go ahead and visit there. Also, I still have justsayitenglish.com, so you can look for that. And just sign up at, on the front page, and you can register for a one-on-one -on -one lesson right away. And yeah, I have my YouTube channel, Dave's English as well. And you can just look at my videos there. Subscribe if you want to or, or not. Like I said, subscriber count don't, don't matter to me, but if you want to watch my videos, my best to do so. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And I will put all the links under the video or under the episode in the links will be in the description. So you can click over and go find Dave and check out his website and his YouTube channel. All right. Sure. Thanks a lot. Hey, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to English World with Chris Americos. Now it's your turn. Don't just listen to English, speak English with us every day. Join our English Everyday Speaking Program today. See you in the next episode. Bye-bye.